0: Our guest is Bob Nay for our weekly Washington, D.C. chat. Bob, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Kevin. I, I, I want to talk about nuclear weapons in Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. but it's it's mm-hmm. I guess it's my duty to ask you to explain in English the Republican caucus in the House of Representatives of the United oh. States of America. I'd probably
1: do better in French or Mandarin, but I'll try. (laughs) Okay, it'll be more understandable. But the 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 caucus, and this is the way I've been phrasing this to everybody that I've gotten so many people that have uh, you know emailed me and things like that, and uh, I explain it as a circular firing squad. It's all Republicans in the middle is McCarthy, and they have lined up, not all of them, but a few of them in what I call a circular firing squad. I talked to some people in D.C. and I always hold it in confidence and, you know, they're Republican members of the House. And I just had a frank conversation asking them, you know, where are you at? Not not on philosophy of votes, but the procedures. And they kind of indicate that there's a few that would rather just well, the quote is burn the house down. And they would rather be in the minority so they can stand up and just object to everything. And they don't see the clear picture, you know trying to get, uh, you know, perfection and missing the good in politics is a big mistake. So the way I sum it up is they have lost the bigger picture. If they continue this, they're going to lose the majority. And if they lose the majority, then in their minds, they will have to think, okay, uh, the Democrats run everything. Now, so which do they want, you know? Uh, they're, they're, I think a few of them are being very selfish, very narrow-minded. And I, I do have to point this out, Kevin. There's about six of the, quote, Freedom Caucus, which has become the issue. There's about six of them that want to run for something else, governors, senators. And so they're getting these shining moments like Matt Gates from Florida yeah. you know, to stand up and threaten the speaker every day.
0: Yeah. Right. so bob where where does this well let me ask you an historical question you served in the House uh when the new Newt Gingrich uh contract for America people were there well, How many of these burned down the house at all costs uh Republicans were there when you were there is it is it qualitatively different today than it was in your day well it's
1: it's a different <clears throat> Procedure. When I um, went into Congress, I was the, the you know the Newt Gingrich contract with America class. After forty years, we turned the Congress over, and then we had what I call the old bulls. Which now I'm an old one, but I used to say the old bulls were complaining. We came in, and there was a group of us moderates that liked certain certain pro labor issues, and so in fact there were fifty of us, and some of the ultra-conservatives started to complain about us and that we should be tampered down and thrown off committees, et cetera. And I remember Newt Gingrich staying up saying, listen, fight your fight. We have a caucus. Every one of you has a different idea possibly, and you think the vote should go a different way. You argue these things out, you do your best, and then you have a vote is what you do. And Gingrich said, but what you don't do is to take the Republican leadership and take them out in order to get your way. I mean, you know, and when they went after Newt, six of them, I remember Newt standing up saying, Okay, you want me to leave? Fine. This is bigger than me. It's the institution of the speaker. So in my day, yes, we had people who were, ultra, I'll call them ultra conservatives, because today, you know, I would be branded a different type of Republican than I was right. you know, back then, right. even though I was a fiscal hawk. So I would say that it was different in our day in this sense uh people would not like sometimes what happened. Sometimes they would. But the ultra right movement within the caucus at that time would not take steps to you know bring down the speaker or necessarily or to bring down the House Republicans uh, for their own motives. That that has changed a lot. There was a lot more, uh, I think, giving of the system, not compromise their values, but giving of the system a little bit more respect than what is shown today.
0: Okay, let's switch to a very compli – let's go from complicated to, uh, to really complicated. Let me see if I've got this straight. In an effort to secure a peace deal between Saudi Arabia and Israel, the Biden administration is making certain uh, public and private promises to Saudi Arabia. Uh, and this is going to be very controversial – But on the table is the sharing of uranium with Saudi Arabia, and people are worried that – well, we assume Saudi Arabia wants to become a nuclear state. Maybe you can take it from there.
1: Well, Saudi Arabia does. I lived in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. I was the American manager of a company, so I'm very familiar with the Saudis. Uh, Again, worked over there. I uh, happened to have wor- you know worked in Iran in nineteen seventy eight, so <laughs> kind of two interesting countries that hated each other, but the Chinese brought them together, as we know, two months ago. So now they have embassies. So that part's done. So I don't think the Iranians are going to freak out necessarily over the Saudis having nuke weaponry ability because, uh, Saudi Arabia is a business kingdom. I want to make that clear. Anybody that thinks that Saudi Arabia is willing to fight to the death for the Palestinians, better look at history. Uh, Palestinians have a better chance to live in America than they do in Saudi Arabia. Right. Uh, a little bit easier. So. I think Saudi Arabia you know, wants the nukes. They know America wants this Israel-Saudi deal, which is going to happen on its own anyway, frankly, or not on its own anyway. But the Saudis know we want it. And, you know, when the Saudis know we want something, they'll, they'll ask us for certain things. And all of a sudden we see they want a defense quota of Saudi Arabia. What's defense of Saudi Arabia? Let it enrich, you know, what it needs to enrich to get to the nuclear status. So I think Saudi Arabia is playing us. Uh, I don't think they intend to, you know, help us with oil. The president went over there the previous time, fist bumped, you know, Mohammed bin Salman came out saying, oh, we're going to get help. And what did he do? Mohammed bin Salman restricted more oil. So I think Saudi Arabia says to themselves, oh, the Americans want this deal so bad for political purposes for President Biden to look like, you know, kind of the deal maker. So if they want it that bad, here's what we want. And they want us to basically sign uh, what is a defense support of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia.
0: And, and oh, sidelight, uh, the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman uh, is the guy who ordered the murder of the journalist uh, Khashoggi, and uh, listeners have got to be wondering, what are we doing?
1: Well, uh, Mohammed bin Salman uh, had his mother uh, house arrested, basically imprisoned in her house because she was telling... People in the royal family, there's 5,000 of them, that he shouldn't be the king. There is a king of Saudi Arabia. He's not technically the king. His father has Alzheimer's slash dementia. And so he's running the kingdom. And he did it by putting his mother out of the way on house arrest. Then he made these minor changes. Oh, a woman could drive a car or something. You know, these are minor. And the American. Press fed into it and started to make him a hero, and then the Khashoggi deal happened, which you know right now Trudeau is questioning whether India was behind the the shooting of a Canadian. He questions that when it comes, and and, you know they're looking into that. But when it comes to Saudi Arabia, we all know Khashoggi was killed within the walls of the Saudi embassy. This is not like Canada trying to investigate uh, India. This is a for sure situation our own intel has said you know he knew and nothing happens in the kingdom without Mohammed bin salman nodding his head to approve it now at that time you know everybody including biden well not trump i should say that but everybody including biden the campaign said oh you know we're going to deal with them they've done these things and then kaboom election ends and it all turns you know okay because of saudi's power and
0: oil wealth fascinating Uh, lastly bob uh, you're from Ohio, a, a, an auto-producing uh, state. Um, the UAW and the uh, big three are at loggerheads. Uh, I, I feel that the UAW's got some leverage here, but you know a lot more than I do. Where's this going to go? Well, they do. And by the way, if
1: you Google the average wage of the auto workers, it's going to shock you. Everybody thinks they're making you know $80 an hour or something. Their wages, in some cases, are are horrible. So the UAW is taking a a stance. Now, where the UAW was smart, I think, the Canada Union settled on the big three, but that's okay. That'll allow the United Auto Workers to see what they settled and give them some clues. But the UAW is smart because it it made a strike at at, uh, just limited three places, one in Toledo, Ohio. Now there are you know many many facilities around the country they can start to selectively strike certain facilities so certain work continues certain facilities are strike which interrupts the supply chain to other facilities i think they have a lot of leverage also the big three are losing i think in a 10 day period of time 5 billion dollars with a b everybody hopes this is settled cuz car prices are high enough you know yeah. but i would say the uaw has some leverage in this and it's probably just going to have to be settled soon because they can selectively strike.
0: Okay. Bob Ney, as always, everything about D.C., thanks so much. Thank you so much. It's Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. And guess who we have with us right now? Marianne Lichtig of Seven Days, and she's going to talk about her cover story on Alexander Twilight. My old (laughs) colleague from the Burlington Free Press, welcome to the show. Tell us about Alexander Twilight.
2: Hi, Kevin. Well, first of all, great to be talking to you again. Uh, Alexander Twilight is a fascinating Vermonter that I learned so much about in the course of working on this story. He was uh, a 19th century educator. He was born in Bradford in 1795, um, and he was also a minister and a legislator. He is now known to be the first American of African descent to graduate from an American college. And that was Middlebury in 1823. And also the first African American to be elected to a state legislature. And that also was here in Vermont, uh, in 1836. So he's a complicating, complicated, interesting figure because during his lifetime, most people thought he was white. Uh, historians, including Bill Hart, who is a professor emeritus of history at Middlebury College, uh, believed that he was about 25 percent black, um, but he looked mostly white. Uh, and it wasn't until 1974 when an editor of a Middlebury alumni magazine combed through census data from 1800 and 1810 and found that twilight had been marked in a category where free blacks were marked in those days census takers decided um what your race was they were the ones that marked you didn't self-report so those two census marked him as a free black man but no census after that did so it's been a, a fascinating story
0: and uh, he is the—I can't believe he was a legislator. I had forgotten that. And we now—and mm-hmm. mm-hmm. we now, thanks to all of this uh, good revisionist history—we have a portrait of him in the Vermont State House.
2: That's right. It was unveiled um, in May of 2022. The artist is Katie Rundy. Alexander Twilight is the first person of color to be um, in in a portrait. And the state house. Um, they've got a committee. there working to change that. There's another one in the works apparently, or, or they're hoping they're hoping. But um, I spoke with David Sheets, who's the curator at the state house. And, and it's his job to see that building as a museum. And he's one of the things he said to me was, you know, this is the people's house. This has to reflect the people more accurately. And so now Alexander twilight is one of four portraits that you see when you walk into the, the front doors of the state house.
0: He fought in the Revolutionary War, did he not?
2: No, his father.
0: I'm sorry, his, his father, father, Ichabod. That's right.
2: Ichabod, right. And they don't know if he actually saw action. It was I, One of the biographers had said it was unlikely that he saw action, but he did enlist um, in the Continental Army in New Hampshire toward the end of the Revolutionary War. So, yeah, he was believed to be a free man. He was born in Boston in 1765.
0: How do you think, Marianne? Uh, going all the way back, how do you think a guy like Twilight gets to Middlebury? That's got to be a, a torturous journey, uh, in terms of in terms of gaining admission.
2: hmm Well, that that all of that is very interesting too. Uh, Middlebury was 21 years old at the time that Twilight enrolled there, so it's hard for us to think about that. It was formed. It was um, started in 1800, and so in 1821. Twilight, um, by all accounts, was this uh, very smart, hardworking, um, and stubborn—maybe that's not the right word—but he had a strong-willed man. So he uh, got a great education through um, the Orange County Grammar School in Randolph, and he most likely met the president of Middlebury College at an ordination um, in 1821, Bill Hart has put all those pieces together. And Bill Hart thinks that the president of Middlebury at the time was impressed with Alexander Twilight and invited him to apply. And Twilight did. Um, there were no rules on race then from as far as the historians can tell. Um, so he doesn't know if they knew he was black and didn't care or if they didn't know he was black.
0: Mm. And Marianne, you can go see the Alexander Twilight House in Brownington, Vermont. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, Brownington has a whole historic district, um, which includes the house, the very first house that he was, um, he and his wife, Mercy, were given to live in um, when when Alexander came to be the headmaster of that school in 1829. But as soon as he got there, he decided to build a bigger house which is also there. Um, and he built it big enough so that he could board some of the students who came to this school because the, the students came from a region from around Vermont, as well as from Southern Quebec. Um, so you can see those two buildings, the most significant building or the one that's um, really anchors the whole site is this four story granite dormitory that he built. It's this monstrous um building that is still ramrod straight sitting there um, in the right there on this whole site um, and the story there behind that really shows a lot about Twilight's character he wanted to build a dormitory he thought students could he could house more students on site they would get a better education that way also it was it would be a source of revenue the room and board that the students would pay to live there but the trustees said no to him on that proposal. Um, They didn't want to take on debt and they didn't want to deprive the townspeople from the room and board rent that they were getting from housing students. So Twilight storked out totally on his own and built this dormitory over the course of two years. So that you can also see. And that is preserved pretty much as it was, which makes it a pretty unique site. Um, It's a it's a fascinating spot. And one of the bedrooms you can see was larger than the typical dorm room. I just moved a couple of kids into college dorm rooms this fall. This is spacious. Um, I happen to see a corner room. Um, so lots of space. They had little fireplaces called braziers in the walls. Mm. In one of the windows, you can see two um, schoolgirls etched their names in cursive into the window. And so there's fun details That are still preserved there,
0: Uh, Marianne. The the sort of theme that runs through your story is about Twilight. Is it's complicated, and Mm -hmm. and one of Mm -hmm. those complications is uh, Middlebury's uh, Middlebury has named a door a building after Twilight, and they they Mm -hmm. use him to study issues of race, Uh, and you know it's it it is complicated. Uh, Does you know there's a line in your. You know, in your story about whether whether Middlebury should sort of deserves to bask in the glow of Twilight's uh, reputation, mm-hmm. talk about mm-hmm. that if you would.
2: And the same goes for Vermont. You know, Vermont here it's it's a matter of pride that um, Vermont is home to the first black state legislator. Um, and but the way that uh, Middlebury, and this is I think largely driven by Daniel Silva, who is the former director of the Black Studies Program and also the Twilight Project, this is this research program at Middlebury, and Bill Hart both say that Twilight's story gives all of us now an example, a lens or a portal to look at how we have considered race over the years. Um, because since he was racially ambiguous, uh, he was able to accomplish all of the things that he did Um, and as Bill Hart points out he said we need to understand that racial assignment is not something that's essential it's a socially manufactured um, and agreed-upon system where we categorize people and in that system we use whiteness as the norm and then we get this idea that if you have even one drop the absurd one drop rule this this rule has been accepted now for generations um, one drop of any non-white ancestry makes you that race and how that's really an absurd um, system. Here's Twilight. He was probably three quarters white, but now we consider him black. Why do we do this?
0: And this goes on. This is happening at the same time that we've, the Middlebury uh, leadership has taken the name of Miss uh, Governor Meade off its chapel, and our own former governor, Jim Douglas, has sued to uh, stop that and put the name back on the chapel uh, right next door on the same campus.
2: Mm hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's, it's all part of Middlebury and other universities across the country, as well as society as a whole, wrestling with its history, and trying to reckon with its yeah. history. And history was created by people, and people are complex beings. Um, so, yes, uh, the former governor, John Mead, was tied to eugenics, and so that's why his name has been stripped from the chapel.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's – uh, well, you can read about it all in seven days, and you can read – uh, all of Marianne Lichtig's journalism there, 7daysvt.com. Marianne, what's next for you? Give us a, give us an inkling about what you're working on.
2: Well, yesterday I got to sit down with Alison Bechtel, oh. um, the Vermont cartoonist who has, as every most people know, created um, award-winning cartoon strips, Dyke to, Dykes to Watch Out For, as well as Fun Home, her graphic memoir about uh, her father that was turned into a Tony Award-winning musical, she's going to be headlining the Green Mountain Book Festival.
0: I so, well, we, we, uh, ha- we I know we we, we promoted it on the show. We've got to go. Um, well, tell Alison Bechtel when you see her again that I want her on the show, and I know that ah. she lives in, in I know where she lives, but I'm not going to knock on her door. Marianne Lichteig, as always, thanks a million for joining us.
2: So great to be with you, Kevin. Thank okay. you.
0: It's Vermont. It's Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis, your host. It is Friday and, and on a record breaking show because th- we are now at our fifth guest. And it's the best of all, with apologies to Meg Smith at the Vermont Women's Fund. Our guest is Will Adams, and he is the founder of something called Honeybrook Tools and Woodworks. And if you're in your shop, and a lot of you are in your shop right now, I can think of one uh, master carpenter, Irek Stauffer, who makes kitchens at a very high level, including mine. Uh, he's in his shop listening to the show. Our guest is Will Adams. He's the uh, founder of Honeybrook Tools and Woodworks. Welcome to the show live in the studio.
3: Kevin, it is great to see you.
0: <laughs> I'm not sure I've seen you, seen you in the flesh for 20 years.
3: It's been a while. We yeah. we, we ran into each other a couple times on yeah. the streets of Montpelier since we both left the hallowed halls of the Statehouse. Yeah. Um, but it's great to be here.
0: But we follow, I, I, we follow each other on social media and I, uh, jealously follow Will on Instagram and Facebook because about every month or so on, I think it's Instagram, Will will, uh, display some new, uh, project, you know, and you all know how, how I feel about this, the fear of sort of being, uh, left behind, you know, he builds, a beautiful hand-hewn barn in his backyard in Berrytown, and then he unveils a new hand tool, uh, a new uh, winding stick, uh, and and it's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. And I'm like, I can't even build a, a you know, a bird box. Or, you know, my goal in life is to build an outhouse. <laughs> but uh, maybe you can come over and give me some tips.
3: Well, in, in fairness, I didn't build the barn. You didn't build the barn. I did not build the barn. We okay. hired that done. I know nothing about framing and construction, but I can make you a hand tool.
0: So this, so let's start from the beginning. Where does Honeybrook Tools and Woodworks in your brain? Where did that come from? <sighs>
3: Well, Kevin, uh, um, there's, there's not a short answer to that. The
0: word journey is popping up into my,
3: yeah. So, um, as, as you know, and as, as we talked about before going on the air, I, I've, I've, uh, I've done a lot of things in my life at 55. Um, so Honeybrook tools came to me, um, in the winter of 2022, I think, when I um, I had been teaching for about 10 years, I taught elementary school, and um, I'd been on a medical leave. I had had a knee replacement, and I was coming back from my medical leave, and um, I didn't like the way that I was being treated. Um, and some of the just some of the the circumstances, or or, or um, the way I would have to work um,
0: as part of a larger in organization and well, institution. Well, that and,
3: and and just just personally, I yeah. i, I I'd, I'd been moved from sixth grade to second grade, right. and it it just the stress of the work had gotten the best of me, and um, I finally just said, I can't do this anymore. And I resigned um with the full and loving support of my wife Joanne. Um we are a team, everything I do is because of her. Um and I didn't really know what I was gonna do. Now Joanne was a speech language pathologist. We were kind of on a uh two year plan. She she just retired and I, I was gonna retire about the same time. Um but you know, this was ahead of time and I and I didn't really know what I was gonna do with myself. Um And I had recently bought a wood lathe, uh, one of the few tools that I had never used before. Um, I I went to a friend's house and and did some turning just to see what it was all about. And I bought an old lathe on Facebook Marketplace. And, um, you know, when I resigned from teaching, I turned to my wood shop as therapy. I had kind of a vague idea that I could do something out of the wood shop and, and, you know, make some money. I I love making boxes and, and things like that. Um, but once I started turning, um, you know, it, 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 anybody who's in their shop will know, everybody needs a handle for like a file, <laughs> like a wood file or a metal file. And I just started –
0: chainsaw file.
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, so I just started turning simple handles and I, f- I found the act of turning just really therapeutic. Yeah. Now, I'm most I, – I, my passion right. is hand tools. I love hand tools. Um, but I got into the turning and I started making handles for myself. And then, um, I thought, well, maybe I can make a knife, you know, everybody needs a knife. Um, and I found a supplier for some blades and I started, you know, fitting the blades to the handles and, um, through social media, through woodworking groups on Facebook and so forth, people started saying, you got something going here. You should, you should do something with this. Um, so I started posting them in, in Facebook groups and, um, Honeybrook tools just kind of created itself and it, it was the result of my need for some just kind of personal therapy. After I, I left teaching, I was also recovering from major surgery, ended up having three other knee surgeries that year. So it was, it was kind of a, it was kind of a long haul, but, um, It created itself, you know? (laughs) Uh,
0: And it it created itself to the extent that you are on the cover of Quirkus?
3: Quirkus Magazine.
0: Magazine, which, you know, ain't the Atlantic or the New Yorker, but I bet among hand tool makers, it's uh, the cat's meow. Tell us about that.
3: So Quirkus Magazine is based in the United Kingdom. Um it celebrates working wood mostly by hand. And, um, I was in Popular Woodworking magazine. Um, well, let me back up. The woodworking community is actually pretty small. Oh. I mean, what, what, once you, once you kind of get within the network, I mean, a lot of people know each other, yeah. you know?
0: I have a friend named Garrett Hack in Thetford, Vermont, who is a celebrated, uh, fine. He's on the, he's in the, he's in fine either woodworking or fine home building all the yeah. time. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. The, the level of attention to detail among you people <laughs> is just <laughs> something that I cannot fathom.
3: But, and there's a lot of them right here in Vermont. Yeah. A lot. I of, mean, there's just a lot of yeah. extraordinarily talented makers, yeah. be it, you know, chair makers, furniture makers, potters. Yeah. Um, and so back to Quercus. Um, after I was in Popular Woodworking magazine, um, they they celebrate small tool makers. You know, every couple times a year they'll they'll do a, um, a spotlight on a toolmaker, and, and I was honored to be able to to be one of those. Back in I think it was March of this year, um, and shortly after that, Quercus magazine started following me on Instagram. Um, and then I was invited to be a vendor at Handworks, which I just got back from Labor Day weekend. In, in, in Iowa. In Iowa. Yeah. In the Amana colonies.
0: Tell, tell us how you got there. Uh, you you wrote about this. You, you had to fly from.
3: Literally how I got there? Yeah, literally. Okay, so, how did so you get there? Joanne and I, um, I shipped some of my tools to a friend who happens to live in Amana, <laughs> yeah. a, a woodworker. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we flew to Chicago and I had, the nice thing about my tools is they're small enough that I could put them in um, a piece of luggage and check it. So we flew to Chicago, rented a car, and then drove the three and a half, four hours from Chicago to the Man Colonies.
0: Nice.
3: And Handworks, um, it's really uh, – they, they haven't done it since 2017 because of the pandemic and what have you, but it is kind of the premier – Hand tool woodworking show in the U.S. And, and somebody suggested that maybe it's the biggest in the world, but, yeah. um, probably three or four thousand people came through over the course of two days. Um, three different spots, three different barns within the Amana colonies oh. where vendors are set up. And I mean, the biggest names in hand tool woodworking were there. And I was too. <laughs>
0: oh As promised before the break, Will, what is a winding
3: stick? So a winding stick is a traditional uh, tool that woodworkers use to determine whether or not a board has any twist in it. Okay, so when you start out um, planning a board... Um, you know, you get a board from your lumber mill. It's rarely going to be perfectly square and flat. So you got to plane it flat. Now I'm, I'm, I'm approaching this from a hand tool woodworking standpoint. So the purpose of the winding stick is you take, you take your board, you put one winding stick and these, for those who are, well, listening, obviously it's radio. (laughs) (laughs) Um, my, my winding sticks are 16 inches long, about two inches tall. And you put one winding stick on one end of the board. You put its partner on the far end of the board. And these are these winding sticks are perfectly parallel to each other. Yeah. So then what you do is you, you lean down and you look over the top edge of the winding stick nearest you. And the idea is that you want the top edge of that winding stick to be completely parallel with the winding stick that's farthest away from you if there's any twist in the board they won't be perfectly parallel and because the winding sticks are generally wider than the board that you're planing it exaggerates the twist and tells you where you need to to plane it to make it flat
0: okay tell us about your shop my shop in my barn in east montpelier is a dump And when you, when I saw a picture of your barn, your shop on Instagram a couple years ago. Yeah. uh, It was humiliating. So tell us about your shop. It, is it, is it perfect? Is there no dust on the floor?
3: Oh, Lord have mercy. No, no, no. no. You know, and, and I, I I see people on Instagram who post pictures of their shops and they're immaculate and they're, um, I am very much, um, Kind of a mad scientist in, in the shop. I mean, I, I think I've got a touch of ADHD. So I've got right. like the attention span of a gnat. Yeah. So I'll go from one thing to another sometimes. And, uh, at the end of the day, the shop can look like a tornado hit it. I'm learning now that I've made this a business as opposed to a hobby that, mm. you know, all right, I need, I need to dial that back. I need to have order. I need to have, um, Discipline, you know, um, but no, it's not. It's not immaculate, and I don't care that it's not. Uh, but as you what, write- what I do care about is that when the tools leave my shop, they need to be perfect for their purpose. Yeah. Now they're handmade. Every one of my handles is hand turned. I don't use any CNC machines or lathe duplicators. I got nothing against people who do. It's just not my gig. So all of my hand handles are. Hand turned by eye, so if you put two of them next to each other, you would know that I made them. But you might see that there's some subtle differences between the two of them, and that's okay. Because when you buy a marking knife from me, you know that it's unique, and you know that um, it came from came from me. I'm the only guy in the shop aside from my dog Murphy, and He's
0: employee gr- of the year, I understand.
3: He's, he's consistently employee of the month. Um, of, of he, the he's, month. He's, he's my morale officer, but he doesn't produce a lot other than good spirits. Uh,
0: there is a Honeybrook scratch all. Yes. What's the difference between a scratch all and a birdcage
3: all? Okay. So, a birdcage all, uh, the etymology of that. Phrase uh, birdcage awls were originally back in the day when people made bird uh, bird cages. They're often made out of wicker, and this particular awl, its uh, the the blade is four sided, uh, which makes it ideal for reaming out a hole. So Aye. you can put a hole in your your board. You, put the all into it and you twist it and it it's great for starting a hole. Back in the day when they made birdcages out of wicker, uh my understanding is that these were used to start those holes. Hence the name birdcage all. A scratch all is exactly what it says. It is a tool that's used for making scratch lines so you could use it as a marking tool if you wanted to mark a cut line you could do that if you just wanted a little pinpoint somewhere on your board just to to mark that okay this is where i'm going to do this you could use it for that you could use it on metal um, if you like sometimes when i'm working with brass i'll use a scratch all just to um Mark a, a cut line there. Don't,
0: don't drop it on your foot.
3: No, no, that would be bad.
0: Yeah, they're really sharp. Uh, and you can go to honeybrooktools.com and check all of this stuff out. All. Uh, yeah. Oh, funny.
3: Yeah. Funny. I'm a punny guy too.
0: <laughs> the, we try to do a lot of profound things on this show in a very short period of time. And in the three minutes we have left, uh, what do you find in the shop? that you didn't find in previous career iterations. Something's going on in that shop for, for something goes on for Michael Jordan on the basketball court. Something goes on for, you know, athletes, uh, woodworkers, uh, even politicians, you know. What is it about the shop that keeps you coming back every day?
3: So, Every career I've had has been fulfilling in one way or another. When we were together in the state house, I really, I, I love policy. Yeah. Um. I didn't like the politics as much. I, I, I like the thinking and the the like the the getting to yes, yeah. which didn't happen a lot. Teaching, and that's
0: often people at their worst. Oh yeah. Yeah. Sometimes they're best. Sometimes they're best. But sometimes at some, some, they're not best.
3: Yeah. Some yeah. some great people. Yeah. Um, teaching, I loved. Seeing the light go on yeah. with kids. Yeah. Me too. I didn't like the system. Yeah. What keeps me coming back to the wood shop is every day I get to make something and every day I get to make something that another woodworker gets to use and they use that tool to make something. I am fundamentally
0: a wholesaler. <laughs> uh,
3: no, no. I am fundamentally a maker. A maker, yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, people who knew us back in the day don't know that side of me. That's right. But, I mean, I am fundamentally a creative spirit. And when I'm making something, when I'm creating something, I'm at my happiest. And the idea of being able to go into my shop and take a piece of raw wood and then turn it into something functional that has my hands on it, and is then going to go out into the world? I've got, a, I've got a set of winding sticks that are going to Sweden. Yeah. Just the idea that I can make something that somebody else is going to use to make something is inspirational to me.
0: What about the, the pressure of the um, transition from hobby to it's your living? What was that like? It's a real business now
3: it, it it's a real business, and there are some there are some stresses to that, but I haven't hesitate to even use the word stress yeah, um, yeah. you know the the woodworking community is the most supportive community I've been engaged with, and people understand that it takes time to make a quality tool yeah yeah um, so any pressure that I feel, it's all self-imposed, you know got it but i i love what i do
0: how long has it been a business
3: uh 18 months maybe 18 months it's it and it has it took off yeah. and, and and it was very very organic yeah. it just happened
0: Will Adams, the founder of Honeybrook Tools, right there in the pride of Barrytown, meaning he's up on a hill so he didn't get flooded. Uh, thanks for coming on the show.
3: Kevin, thank you so much for having me. It's okay. great to see you.
0: All right. HoneybrookTools.com. Check it out. Uh, and check me out. Uh, if you want to be a guest on this show, uh drop me an email at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. This show becomes a podcast. Uh, at WDEVradio.com, and of course, you can listen live to the show. But click on the podcast, and actually, our engineer, Danny, is dividing the segments up into, into little bits. So if you just want to hear Will Adams, uh, you can go for it, and then you can put it on your own social media. You can find me at KevinKLS.com, or you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter called Conflict of Interest, or my podcast, Conflict of Interest, which examines the issues we deal with on the show We'll be back next Wednesday. Uh, don't have a, quite the plan for the show, but we will talk about my never-ending issue, which is I'm signing up for Medicare, and I have no idea what I'm doing. But I'm getting on a webinar today at noon. I welcome your questions and input. As always, we'll talk politics and everything else going on in Vermont and the nation and everything else on my mind and yours. Our show is produced by me, engineered and made possible by Danny McGivrigan today and Pete on the board and all the folks at WDEV. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellison. and we'll see you right back here Wednesday on Vermont Viewpoint, live radio on the Friendly Pioneer. Hello, Lynn Gerkey, my neighbor. It's WDEV.